Christ our Lord. And so I do hope that we appreciate those opportunities because one day those opportunities will cease. And of course, those who are the saved, those who have been called by our God through the gospel and have obeyed that gospel will worship God eternally. Uh, we will always uh, be praising God for the rest of eternity, and that is uh, time unlimited. Uh, but for those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will wish they had. And so we are thankful for this privilege and opportunity we have this morning, uh, this evening, rather, to be able to do these wonderful things in light of ourselves and in spite of ourselves. And of course, showing that God is most certainly kind, loving, and gracious. If you will turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, and I want to read verse number 5. Luke chapter 23 and verse 5. I said Luke, didn't I? Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 5. Trying to get all my gadgets and recordings. I, we uh, put our lessons on the website as well. I put our, uh, my lessons on the website as well, even when I'm doing gospel meetings away from home. And so I find out that I can't multitask as I once was able to. And that could be a sign of age or could be a sign of perhaps I'm uh, not as intelligent as I thought I, I was. But in Luke, <laughs> Leviticus chapter 23 and verse number 5, uh, Moses, the servant of God, writes these words. In the 14th day of the first month, at even, it is the Lord's Passover. And on the 14th day of the same month, it is the feast of the unleavened bread. Until the Lord, seven days ye must eat unleavened bread. Now, as we look at verse number 5, of course, we know that this is the Passover, uh, a celebration of feast, rather, in God delivering those who had the blood of a lamb upon their doorpost, uh, uh, doorpost from the destroyer. In other words, God, uh, death rather passed over uh, those who were obedient to God as God would give the plagues to help Pharaoh and to convince Pharaoh that he needs to release his people as he commanded through Moses, uh, his servant. But now I'd like for you to turn also to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers Chapter 9, my apology, verses 10 through 14. Numbers chapter 9, verses 10 through verse number 14. Now we have seen what, of course, uh, Leviticus says is very simple, very plain as to when this Passover was to be observed. But if we notice in Numbers chapter 9, there is something else that Moses would say. Numbers 9, verses 10 through 14. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, if any man of you or your posterity shall be unclean by reason of a dead body or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Passover unto the Lord. The 14th day of the second month at even, they shall keep it and eat it with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any, uh, any bone of it according to all the ordinance of the Passover, they shall keep it. But the man that is clean and is not in a journey and forbeareth to keep the Passover, even the same soul should be cut off from among his people because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season. That man shall bear his sin. And if any strangers shall sojourn among you and will keep the Passover unto the Lord, according to the ordinance of the Passover and according to the man uh, manner thereof, so shall he do 
ye shall have one ordinance both for the stranger and for him that is born in the land. So as we look at these two instances, these two passages of Scripture written by the same man, by the same God as commanded by him, we do see some differences. We see, of course, on the uh, 14th day of the first month, and then we see here a different time, the fourth day of the second month, a 14th day of the second month. I want to ask you a question as we look at these two verses. Now, they're talking about the same Passover feast. But yet we find two different days, two different times, based on two set of conditions. Has God or did God in this instance make an exception to his command? Did he make an exception to his command? That's what we want to look at this evening, the subject of exceptionalism, and that is Did he make an exception to his command? Now, as we think of the subject of exceptionalism or biblical exceptionalism or exclusionism, probably more specifically stated, that's a very important question. There are many today who believe that God makes exceptions to his rules. He makes exceptions to his commands. As a matter of fact, based on your particular situation and circumstance, God will make an exception to you in spite of everyone else. Now, I believe as we go back to the verses that we've just noted, I don't believe it's a matter of exception. I believe God made provision within his commands. Provision based upon the circumstances that we all do and uh, that they rather would incur or perhaps uh, have to undergo at that time. But the question of exception versus provision is very important, very distinct. We need to make sure that we get a proper understanding of the two because they are different. Now, as we think about the idea of exception or that which is exceptional rather, we note that Something that is exceptional is not ordinary, it's uncommon, it's rare, it's hence better than the average or superior uh, in another regard. A rare occasion, something that's exceptional to our normal practices or experiences, we saw here in uh, Numbers, or Leviticus rather 23 and verse 5, as far as Numbers chapter 9 and verse 10 through 14. Those instances were rare in the sense, they were things that didn't occur with any normality. But now, an exception, an exception is the act of accepting or excluding, exclusion, restricting by taking out something which would otherwise be included as in a class statement or rule. So in other words, something that's exceptional is different than something that is an exception. And again, as we consider what we've just noted, we have to decide, well, what's the difference? Well, is this important? Is there a difference between that which is an exception or that which is exceptional? Now, when we think about the word exception, of course, we as Christians can automatically, will automatically think about the service that we have to God. Now, there have been instances of exceptional service to God. Of course, Jesus, of course, is the exception. He's the exception because he did everything perfectly. He did always those things that were commanded him. Of course, he would say that's why God heard his prayers. He did always those things that were commanded him. Jesus was perfect flawless, infallible in everything that he said and everything that he did. So he is, of course, the exception. And when we look at instances such as that in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, we clearly see that Jesus was an exception and his service was exceptional. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22. And of course, the Bible tells us 
of Jesus. There's none other that would ever do what Jesus did the way that he did it. Of course, now we are perfected in him, and we thank God for his perfect example, but there's none other than, than Jesus. In verse 22, he says, Who did no sin, neither was God found in his mouth. Of course, Jesus Christ did nothing. In Hebrews chapter 4, in verse number 14 through 16, the Hebrew writer also tells us of the exceptional nature of Jesus Christ and his exceptional service to God, and that he was perfect in every single aspect of everything, a uh, single thing he did. Seeing then that we have a, high, a great high priest, which is passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find help, or find grace, rather, to help in time of need. Exceptional. He is the exception, and he is an except, uh, exceptional. His words in life were exceptional. Turn to John chapter 7, verse 45 through 47. John chapter 7, verse 45 through verse number 47. His words in life, the things that he spoke in life and regarding life were exceptional. There were words like none other that had ever been spoken. John chapter 7, verse 45 through 47. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? They were to arrest Jesus and, and bring him to them. The officers said, Never man spake like this man. Never man. Notice he doesn't say, you know, uh, there was uh, no, no man. Uh, nobody's ever spoken like Jesus. He is, he is exceptional to every single person that has ever lived. No, the, the text really is no man, no, man rather, man himself has not spoken like Jesus. In other words, Jesus is not speaking as man speaks. He was not just an exceptional man. He was the exception to man because he was God and man. Fully God, fully man. And his words conveyed the difference and the distinction in the two. And so Jesus was ex an exception and he gave exceptional service to God. And that which he did and that which he spoke. But there were others who were exceptional in life as well. But of course, Jesus is the exception. Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes. We talked about Noah this morning. Why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Well, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him to do. He gave exceptional service. Abraham gave exceptional service. As a matter of fact, God says that he knew Abraham would obey all in his household to obey the words and commandments of the Lord. Abraham gave exceptional service as we know he did all that God commanded him he left the land where God commanded him to leave he offered his son Isaac as God commanded him to do no, uh, Abraham now Abraham was not the exception like Jesus because Abraham sinned as well as Noah but they gave exceptional service no uh, Moses rather gave exceptional service to the point where no one ever spoke to God face to face like Moses did as we see in Numbers 12 and verse 7 and Deuteronomy 34 and verse 10 Christians, even, in the New Testament, gave exceptional service. In Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, we find people such as Phoebe, who was a servant of the search in Sincrea. She gave exceptional service. We find Aquila and Priscilla, who, who, who literally hazarded their lives for the Apostle Paul. They, too, gave exceptional service. The household of Stephanus, who were addicted to the ministry of the saints, in 1 Corinthians 16, 14 through 15, they, too, gave exceptional service. The church, uh, churches rather themselves. What about the Thessalonian church in First Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 6? They were an example to the churches of Judea. They sounded out the word of God. All these 
people in churches are listed because of their faithfulness to God, their exceptional service. But now we need to be careful. We need to be mindful of the fact that exceptional doesn't mean or confuse rather exceptional with the exception with Jesus. Because even when we do those things that God commands us, we need to be careful. We need to be hesitant to pat ourselves on the back and say, yes, look at my service. Is it exceptional to every other Christian, every other person? I am special. No one is faithful like me. No one serves God like me. It's somewhat like we hear people say, I'm the humblest person I know. We have to be careful because understand our service rendered to God, we must know it may be exceptional in the sense that it is superior to what God commanded, but never lose sight of who we serve. In Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, I really like this because it helps uh, 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 show us or bring us to the point where we ought to be to know that we are serving God because of God's goodness, not because of ours. No one can say, God, you are lucky to have me as one of your children. You are so blessed because I am a Christian. We have to be careful about having that type of attitude and mentality. Jesus teaches us this. In Luke chapter 17, our Lord says, Then said he unto his disciples, It is impossible but that offenses will come, but woe unto that uh, to him rather than whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were uh, hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespassed against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespassed against thee seven times in a day and seven times in a day return return again unto thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostle said unto the Lord, increase our faith. And wouldn't you say that as well when you see what Jesus Christ just commanded? You mean every single time he may trespass against me and every single time he may repent? No matter how many times that is, I'm to forgive him. Lord, you got to help my faith on this. It doesn't seem like that type of person would be sincere in their repentance. It seems like that type of person wouldn't love me to the point that they would not keep doing this. But Jesus gave this command. And so if two, we too would say, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus does that. So as, he's, as they say, look, Lord, please help us to understand this. Give us a greater and better faith. Increase our faith for us to be able to implement these things. Notice what Jesus Christ does. He does not majestically or magically say, hey, you know what? Let me, let me put my hands on you and give you a greater degree of faith. Notice what our Lord does. He teaches them. And the Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard, see, you might say to the sycamore tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea and it shall obey you. But which of you having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, and by and by when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet. And will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I say not. So likewise, you, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Increase our faith. Well, let me tell you what it means to be a servant. And specifically here, a servant of God. Could you imagine any of us, any of us, who would 
labor and toil in the field during the day. Our, our master or dare we say even our employer in our day and time. After we've worked hard and, and grinded to the bone. Comes down and says, hey, go get me this or go get me that. See, we live in a world today that has, I believe, and I like to call it an entitlement mentality. In other words, how dare my boss that, that, that employs me and pays my salary and helps me to make, my, make a living and provide for my family and myself tell me to do something that I don't believe he himself has done. How dare he? Well, see, that type of attitude is not acceptable when it comes to serving God. That's not the mentality that a servant of God can have and please God. And Jesus gives this parable, and of course we would say, well, well, I would think that the master would, would serve the servant and allow the servant to serve himself before he would serve him. No. You see, when we are serving God, we have to understand God and ourselves. And there is a vast difference in the two. The only way we can even have a similarity is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Jesus increases their faith by showing them the attitude of servitude and what it means to be a true servant of God. When you look at Revelation 2 and verse, uh, two, uh, chapter 2 through chapter 3, we see that none of those churches, even though there were different things, different issues, different problems that they may have had, they all were commanded to repent with the exception of one. They all were told, here's what you need to do. There were no exceptions given because of who they were, where they were from, what they were going through. If they were acceptable and pleasing to the Lord, they were accepted. But if they were not, there were some things that they needed to uh, uh, increase and do better. Remember, we find that the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10. uh, Again, one of those, uh, we're going to get it together here. Uh, hopefully by t- today and tomorrow. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul said to the church at Ephesus, By grace you are saved through faith. And not that of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God, God, had ordained that we should walk in him, or walk in them. And remember, God has established these works and ordained these works from the foundation of the world that we are to be faithful servants of him. So it's by grace that we're saved through faith. And remember, it's not by our works. It's not our exceptional services. We say it's not that we are the exception. It's not that I am so godly, so righteous, so faithful that God has to accept whatever I present to him. Now, as we consider the second definition, the exception, and here's where we really want to pay close attention, the exception. Does God make provisions or does God make exceptions to his commandments, to the things that he requires of each and every one of us? I want to insert also a definition, and I believe that uh, this is important, and that's the definition of legalism. Legalism. The uh, dictionary defines legalism as strictness or the doctrine of strictness. In conforming to law. When we think about legalism, which, by the way, the word is not used in the Bible for those who are always accusing us of being legalists. Because we believe that people should adhere to the commandments of God, that God does not make exceptions. The word's not in the Bible. But now we do find in places such as Acts 26 and verse 5, where Luke would record the words of Paul 
when Paul was stating to Agrippa before Agrippa, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Now, there was a reason Paul used uh, the Pharisees as an example. It's a reason he was stating, I was a Pharisee, because remember, they were those who kept the law the strictest. As a matter of fact, we find in places such as Luke 11 and verse number 42, But woe unto you Pharisees, for ye tithe men and ruin all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the others undone. They were very meticulous in how they offered sacrifices and the things that they did. Very meticulous, but they were omitting the weightier matters of the law, Matthew's account says. You have to do both. You can't do one at the expense of the other. God requires a obedient faith, a full faith, that we obey all of his commandments, not some of them, but all of them. Now, there are no exceptions, I believe, to biblical truth. I don't believe there are exceptions at all. When I look at places such as John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, I find that Jesus Christ says that there are no exceptions to God's commandments and requirements for us. There are no exceptions to what God commands of us. In John 3, in verse number 16, note note the the uh, uh, non-exceptionary aspect of what Jesus Christ is saying here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, there it is, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, or, or are evil rather. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, and his deeds may, that his deeds may be manifest that they are wrought in God. Whosoever, he, whosoever, he. There's no exceptions here. God does not state, well, whoever believes in my, uh, believes in my son, Jesus Christ, well, uh, it, it could be based on your past experiences, on your history. Well, you know, I know your family wasn't uh, 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 exposed to this or that, and, and I know you had a rough time. I know things didn't go well for you in life, so I'm going to give you an exception. You don't have to believe in my son. I understand. I understand what you've gone through, so don't worry about it. Now, I do. Uh, realize as well as you that there are provisions within these. Well, what do you mean? Provisions based upon God's commandments. I, I, isn't that an exception? No, they're provisions. And some of the provisions that we may be talking about is those who are not capable of believing. What about the person who does not have the mental capacity to believe? Perhaps they are 33 and have the mind of a two-year-old. Those who are not able, not those who choose not to. And there is a difference. Those are provisions, not exceptions. And we need to make sure that we understand that because the world seems to thrive and dwell on this idea that God makes exceptions. 
Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul says, I exult therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, and intercessions, the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, no exception. None. And by the way, a side note. I would that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for they that are in authority, no matter whether they have a D or a R in front of their political party. As Christians, we do what God says, whether we like them or whether we don't. We'll move on. Now, and again, John 14, verse 6, Jesus uh, saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me, uh, coming to the Father, but by no exceptions to Jesus. You cannot come to God without Jesus. You cannot obey God without Jesus. It does not matter how profound this person may be or, or, or how wise he may seem to be, whether it be Buddha, Muhammad, whoever it may be your reverend, your pastor, your bishop, it does not matter. You cannot come to the Father except by Jesus Christ. And that means that you have to do exactly what Jesus Christ commands be done. The way he commands that they be done. No exceptions. But people may still ask the question, well, I hear that and I see that, but I still ask the question, you know, are there exceptions to the application of biblical truth. Now, you're right. I heard what you said about biblical truth, about truth. There's no exception to that. The Bible clearly says that. But now, what about the applications of biblical truth? Surely, surely God will make exceptions and has made exceptions to how we apply that truth, how we're able to obey that truth and conform to that truth. Surely, with all the people that have lived in this world and all the variety of of, of, of uh, upbringings and experience and his, uh, history, there have to be ap- exceptions rather to the applications of biblical truth. Well, let's consider that for just a moment. There are many things that people believe the, that there are exceptions to the application of biblical truth. And I present to you that I believe that there are no even exceptions to the application of biblical truth. But instead, God has made provision within his commandments, not exceptions to them. And that's the premise that I want to stand upon this evening. First of all, I look at the first example in Mark chapter 10, verse 11, and Mark chapter 19 and verse number 9. Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 9 is oftentimes thought as an exception to Mark 10 and verse number 11. But the commandment of God is not just to remarriage but more specifically to God's law regarding divorce, dare we even say more fundamental, uh, more fundamentally, God's law on marriage. For example, in Mark chapter 10 and verse number 11, Mark records, and he said unto them, whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her, period. There are many who believe that's it, boom, no, 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 no uh, ifs, ands, or buts about it. And then we look at Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 9, where Jesus said again, And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her which is put away, committeth adultery. And people will say, well, see, Matthew 19 is an exception 
to Mark chapter 10 and verse number 11. God has made an exception to the rule. No, God has not made an exception. God has made a provision. Now, even when you go back to the nation of Israel, remember, God said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to put away your wife or to give a right of divorcement. There was a provision. But Jesus Christ, of course, established the true law that from the beginning, this was not so. Now, God is not making an exception. He's making a provision within the commandments that he's given. Except it be for fornication and shall marry another committed for adultery. That's not an exception. That's the provision. That's the commandment of God. So what that means is God has not made an exception for you. He simply says, unless it's for fornication, you ought not to get a divorce. Well, I just won't remarry. Because remember, all God has done is given an exception to his law on remarriage. No, that's not what God has done. And so many people say, well, I just won't remarry. As if divorcing without this provision, without this command, is acceptable to God. God hates divorce. And we live in a world. They lived in a world that divorces were rampant. People took not, uh, did not take seriously the covenant that they'd made with God and their spouse. This is not an exception to the rule. And as we've seen, when people start implementing exceptions, those exceptions seems to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow. The next thing we know, people are putting the people away because of this, that, and that, and this, and this, and that. So that's not what we find here. We have to understand why Matthew 19 was said, why Mark 10 and verse 11 was said. These are not exceptions, but provisions that God has given. The idea of exceptionalism has led some to attempt to imply that God makes exception to his laws instead of provisions uh, within them, as we've already noted. Notice in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 15, there are those, and we're still talking about marriage, who, who, who believe that this particular verse is what they refer to as the Pauline exception. And it's an exception to God's law on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. This is erroneous, I believe. It is simply the totality of God's commands for marriage. That's all Paul is reiterating. He's not giving an exception to God. Well, he's not saying, Paul, uh, uh, give an exception. And by the way, let me go ahead and turn there. Uh, In Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 15. This Pauline exception, as people call it, it, that's an erroneous idea. Notice. Uh, I'll start with verse uh, 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Uh, Else would your children be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God calleth us to peace. There it is. That's the exception. God says if they want to depart, you divorce them, let them depart. You're not in bondage at all in such cases. As a matter of fact, what God is saying here, if that's the case, if they depart, you just go ahead and God understands and you can get married and everything is wonderful. It doesn't matter what God said in Mark 10 and verse number 11. It doesn't matter what uh, God said in Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 9. Don't you worry about that. God says here by the Apostle Paul, he's making an exception to everything he said previously. Going all the way back to Moses in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number two, uh, uh, chapter 1 and cha- uh, chapter 2. This is an exception to the whole rule. Everything that God ever said. God has chosen the Apostle Paul to wipe it all out because of your circumstances. 
Do we honestly believe that? If we do, we need to clear our minds and go back and rethink and restudy the Bible as to what the Bible claims about itself. Because we have lost sight somewhere as to who God is and what his word says. There are some who believe, actually, and there are many who, uh, who try to advocate the idea of exceptionalism. Uh, they use this example, and it's from the book of Jonah. Uh, they believe that God made an exception to the Ninevites. As a matter of fact, he made an exception to the very thing that he had said or pronounced against the Ninevites. And many of our universalist neighbors, friends, and co-workers believe that it's these uh, verses such as this that show that God doesn't necessarily have to keep what he said. In other words, God can change his mind. God can, can revamp what he said. As a matter of fact, he can go against what he said if he so chooses to do so. And oftentimes when we speak against things like this, if we do, people claim that you're putting God in a box. Who are you to say what God will and won't do? You're, you're, you're trying to confine God to your own limitations and boundaries. You can't put, God can do whatever he want to do. I'll tell you one thing God can't do, and I stand on it. I'm saying not that he, he can't do it. He can't lie. He can't. It's impossible. It's not a matter, well, he just chooses not to lie. And, you know, at any given time, he, like he's us. He can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And so if God says a thing, you best believe that it's not an exception. If we find something that seems like an exception, please note it's a provision. It's not an exception. God does not lie. He is not us. But people believe that and they want to believe it. That, that they can do whatever they want to do. And, and God, for some reason, makes an exception for them. Perhaps it's their, their, their works that they do. Perhaps it's their... Uh, feelings or emotions or their heart, as they call it. But God knows me. He, he knows I mean well. He, he knows I don't intend to disobey him. I, I'm not trying. As a matter of fact, because I'm so righteous, because I'm so good and I'm so holy and I'm so morally upright and I'm so loving and I'm so kind that I don't have to do what y'all do. Not me. Now, he may hold that to y'all. But he doesn't hold that to me because, see, I'm special. I'm the exception. And I'm exceptional. And people believe that. And hell is full of those who have believed that. Even in the case of the Ninevites, God is not making an exception to what he had said. Let's turn to Jonah chapter 1. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Because this is, this is, these verses are oftentimes used to to promote this idea of exceptionalism. In uh, Jonah chapter 1 and verse number 1, beginning, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And, of course, we know the story. Jonah rose and went the other way. <laughs> okay. Uh, but then look at chapter uh, 3 and verses 1 through 10. I won't read all these verses, but just note a few of them with me. And the word of the Lord, of course, you know, God, uh, by Jonah being swallowed by a great fish and all the events that took place, Jonah would again uh, get the opportunity to go and to obey God as a prophet of God. And so the Bible tells us the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. 
So Jonah arose and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly a great city of great, a three days journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In other words, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. God has proclaimed it. Amen. Well, we find that the people of Nineveh in verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he uh, laid his robe uh, from him and covered him with sackcloth and set on ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, Taste anything, let them not feed, drink, or water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their, uh, in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn away and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? All right, notice verse 10. Bob did read the whole chapter. Verse 10, and God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Now, well, see, there's an exception. God said he was going to destroy them in 40 days, and he didn't do it. Didn't do it. He changed his mind. He made an exception to what he had said. Well, I don't believe it was an exception, because here's the thing. Everybody who is in sin and accountable to those sins will be judged as sinners and will be condemned to a burning hell because they have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember the provision, all those who are able to believe. How do we avoid that? By an exception or by the provision that God has given? Do we escape that judgment because God says, you know what, I changed my mind. Or do we escape that judgment because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, and we obeyed the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, and repented of all sin. God is still going to destroy those who turn away or reject the gospel. He has not changed his mind. God has given us a means by which we can be redeemed from our sin and have salvation from sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's not an exception. That's part of the plan, as a matter of fact, as we studied this morning. The same thing with Nineveh. They repented. But now what if they hadn't repented? That's the question. That's the question of exceptionalism. If they hadn't repented, would God have destroyed them? That's the question. That's exceptionalism. But here's the thing. We find later that through God's prophets, for example, in Nahum chapter 3 and verse number 7, and it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee, talking again about Nineveh, the Assyrians, shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her, or bemoan her rather? Hence, or whence rather, shall I seek comforters for thee? Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 13. And, I, uh, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and will make Nineveh a desolation and a dry like wilderness or dry like wilderness. Guess what happened later? 
They turned back into their wicked ways, and they were destroyed. And that city was laid waste and made desolate. It's not, an, it's not exceptionalism. Not at all. Not at all. And, of course, we find that even Jesus shows us that this is not exceptionalism. In Matthew 12 and verse 41, our Lord says, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented not, or repented rather at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, a greater than Jonah is here, of course, talking about himself. He uses the Ninevites, the, 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 the harsh, wicked, evil Assyrians, to show that generation of Jews, look at how wicked you are. Because they probably would have had the attitude of Jonah who did not want to preach to the Ninevites, hoping, but knowing that they probably would repent. And so it's not an exception. God does not make exceptions to the things that he commands. I tell you what, another instance we find is God does not make exception to his commands pertaining to salvation. There are so many. For example, we know the verse Mark 16 and verse 16. Why is that everything we see that God commands of the gospel? Most people, most people. Now, I, I believe most people have a problem with repentance. That's the real problem. You know, we oftentimes think, well, the problem is baptism. No, the problem is really repentance. And, of course, that's an issue of faith. They don't really trust nor believe what God says. And, yet, yeah, as we have faith in God, we repent of our sins, we are willing to confess Christ before men, knowing what it means to do so. It's not just a matter of giving a verbal statement in front of a congregation of people. No, it is literally professing one's allegiance, one's commitment, one's willingness to die that they may live again in Christ Jesus. In the first century, when you confess Christ, that could have cost you your life. We, we confess Christ. We are willing, willing for our faith and our obedience to God to cost us, for, cost us our life if need be. Now, we're going to have to die to be born again. But baptism, why is there such a problem with people and baptism? Of course, it goes back, I believe, to the idea of repentance. Why is there such a problem? Jesus clearly said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned or condemned, other versions say. It's, it's pretty simple. It's really pr pretty clear cut. But all of a sudden, denominational doctrines and dogmas and people's own subjectivism, people's own, you name it, you fill in the blank, cause this command to be rejected more than any, at least verbally rejected. And you look at all these verses, and let's look at a few of them. Well, is Jesus Christ, are there exceptions made to what Jesus Christ says here? Well, we know the majority of people in the world say yes. Of course it is. What if there's no water? But what about if you're on top of a skyscraper? What about if you're in the desert? Oh, I even I believe that people think, well, what if you're in the ocean? How are you going to be baptized? I mean, there's just exceptions everywhere. Well, what did Jesus Christ teach? You know, of course, they go to uh, the uh, thief on the cross, Luke 23 and verse 45. Of course, Jesus Christ did say to him, verily I say unto you that this day or today thou shalt be with me in paradise. But that, that, that poses no problem for us. Because understand, Jesus Christ had not been crucified, buried, rose again the third day, and had not given commands to his apostles by which men were to be saved. Now, when we go to Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, after those events had taken place, before he's about to ascend into heaven, notice what Luke records for us. The former treaty have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles, whom he had chosen. 
Notice this, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the father, which saith he, ye have heard of me for John truly baptized with water, but ye should be baptized with the Holy Ghost many days or not many days from here or not many days hence. All right. Now, Jesus would ascend into heaven. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account gives us what he said, the commandments he gave before he ascended. Matthew says that before Jesus Christ ascended, he said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you, or commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Now, that's what he told his apostles before he ascended into heaven. Luke records for us in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 49, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the day of the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father unto you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Luke records for us what Jesus Christ said before. He ascended into heaven. Mark records for us what he said before he ascended into heaven. Go ye into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. He records for us what happened. Now, my question is, has he come back and said something different? Did he come back and say, guys, what I told y'all before, I know this is a new day, a new age. I realize that denominationalism is extremely prevalent in your society, in your world. So, look, I'm back just to kind of set things straight. What I said before and told my apostles, such as Paul and Peter and, and the others, to say, I'm, I'm going to rescind that. As a matter of fact, look, if you want to do that, fine. But if you don't want to, that's fine as well. We're going to make an exception for those who choose to reject that. As a matter of fact, I've already gone back and I've told Paul and let them know that I've, I really kind of changed my mind here. Has that happened? So the last words we find from Jesus are the last words that the apostles preached and taught, such as Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. What Luke records for us, even about the apostle Paul in Acts 22 and verse number 16, who he himself was baptized for the remission of his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. We find all of these apostles given these very same commands. And not only the apostles, you have people such as Philip with the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 doing the same thing. Every single example of conversion we have in the book of Acts commanded and people responded in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ by doing all that God says, including specifically mentioned in each occasion being baptized. And people had the audacity to sit there and say, God is going to make an exception for me in baptism. I don't have to do that. No one has to do it. I'm going to be saved without it. And Jesus, the one who died for them, said, you must. It is amazing to me. How exceptional do they think they are? What makes them so special? I'm just amazed. Audacity. 
As one, uh, one of my professors used to say, the <laughs> mitigated gall. Guys, we are not, nobody is that exceptional. Even the exception, Jesus. Now, again, we were not baptized for the reason he was. But even he, the exception, was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. You know, I could, I could maybe understand, <laughs> you know, if, if, if people thought, well, uh, you know, I, I know Jesus says that. Look, I, I'm just, I just believe maybe that, you know, it's not the water uh, or anything. I'm just doing that because uh, Jesus did it. Now, I don't agree with that. As a matter of fact, you're wrong. But to say that I don't do it because Jesus commanded it. And I know that's not what they believe they're doing, but that's what they're doing. They believe they're exceptions. And exceptionalism, we have to be careful ourselves. One other point, mechanical instruments of music. You know, if you want to take note of any brethren, it seems. Now, there, there are other issues, I believe, that are involved that... That are, that are indicators. But most, many times, let's put it that way. When you see a brother begin to, a gospel preacher, an elder, whoever he may be, start to kind of go off the deep end, for some reason, mechanical instruments and music seem to be one of the subjects that you can kind of take note of and start to see them going down that little slippery slope. It could be very subtle. But then other issues begin to be compiled and they start sliding pretty quick. But for some reason, mechanical instruments and music I don't know why, seems to be a marker or an indicator to brethren's apostasy. That subject. I don't know, beats me too. I, I, I see y'all, I don't know, I don't know either. For some reason, that's it. Now, the Hebrew writer, Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 15, the one who expounded upon the difference between the old and new covenants, that we live under a better covenant based upon better promises because of a better sacrifice, that presents a better hope, said this, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to uh, God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's what the Hebrew writer said to those Jewish Christians that were were very tempted to go back into the law, into the old covenant, thus losing the hope that God had given for some reason. Now, I want you to look at Amos chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Look at what the Old Testament says. Now, yes, there are many verses in the Old Testament that show that, yes, they utilize mechanical instruments and music. But I want to note some things about that. And, of course, that, that can be a whole study or, or, or lesson in and of itself. But in Amos chapter 5 and verse 23, before we actually look at Amos 6, notice what God said. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your hearts. And, again, that's talking about the nation of Israel. That's them, those who were using those things. Then we find in Amos chapter 6, the prophet would state this, beginning in verses 1 through 6. Woe to those that are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure in the mountains of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Calneh and look, and go from here to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity and would you bring near the seat of violence those who decline on beds of ivory and sprawl on the couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who improvise, the New American Standard Version says, to the sound of the harp and like David, 
have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from the sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruins of Joseph. Now, this idea of improvising, I thought, is very interesting because the, the, the word here uh, uh, means, and there's two points I want to make. First is the point of actually irreverence. Now, when he says improvise, the, the word literally means, it should be improvised, I'm sorry, means to uh, sing, to improvise, to strum, to, uh, 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 to scatter words that is prate, to uh, be broken off like fallen grapes. This is not a good word. It's not a positive message from God. And so when they improvise, God is saying that they are presenting to him Things that he has not commanded, literally, that are foul before his eyes. Why? Why? Well, you see all the things that they were doing, that they were accomplishing, that was contrary to God. And the second point is, is this. When you find, especially in the book of Amos, and, and you can find the same thing in Zechariah as well. When God speaks about mechanical instrument, uh, instruments of music, he always seems to bring up David in these things. David in these things. And it's interesting to me that people who go back to the Old Testament and present how they use mechanical instruments of music, one of the condemnations we find, and of course in Acts 20, uh, 2, 20 through to 25, we find the importance of David and, and uh, we see what, what Peter would say about him. But what's interesting to me is that they go back to the Old Testament and they say, well, they did it. But God goes and says, well, David did it. And they and he condemns them because they're trying to do what David did and act like David did. Because David was a man after God's own heart. Are people who go back to the Old Testament and try to try to use these things such as Psalms 150 and, and all these other instances that we find mechanical instruments of music being used. And of course, there are many points we could talk about that. But my point is this. Do they believe that they are in a, a David? God condemns Israel for trying to be like David when they weren't David. And yet people go back and say, well, hey, they didn't know David. David implemented these things. Yes, that's commanded by God. I believe that. But are you saying that you're David? Now, understand, I, I know all these Old Testament characters we can relate to. Every single one seems to present something that oftentimes we can relate to, that we can see the same struggles that they have, that we have. You know, look at, I mean, David did some horrific things. As a matter of fact, if, we would have, if, if David were in our day and time, I, I would wonder if David was a member of any congregation and slept with another man's wife was a member of that congregation, uh, impregnated her, and then had that other man killed. I think there'd be some difficulty accepting fellowship with that individual. Even if he repented. Now, I hope we would, but I'm just telling you, there'd be some problems. Man, you killed Brother Uriah, man. Are you serious? Because you wanted his wife? I repent. Yeah, <laughs> okay, but. But David was a man. We, we can all relate to the vulnerability of David and the things that David. We haven't done those things, hopefully. But nevertheless, I think we all have Bible characters that we can say, wow, I feel that struggle. But now, having said that, which one of us says, you know, I can kind of feel the struggles of David? Well, you know, 
I'm like David when it comes to my service to God. I'm a man after God's own heart. I, you know, when I think about David, I think about me. Who's going to do that? I'm not. You know, we preach it sometimes. Oh, yes, man, I'm more like a Paul. <laughs> you know, Paul was pretty diligent and pretty faithful. I, when I think about people who preach, I think I'm kind of like Paul was. Yeah, read 2 Corinthians 11 and ask yourself that question. Why do people think that they have a relationship with God like David? And they can do what David did because David did it. What arrogance. They honestly believe that they are exceptional to the point that they can do for David. Now remember, God told Israel, you think I'm going to accept it like I did David? You are unfaithful. You're falling away from me. Don't try to be like David. And people are saying, I'm like David. And they're not even in the family of God because they reject God. What arrogance. And then finally, judgment. Acts 17 and verse 29 says this. Is there an exception to judgment? Well, look at what the apostle Paul says. For as much then as we the offspring of God, we ought not to think that God is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why, Paul? Because he is appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. By that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he's given assurance unto all men, and that he raised him from the dead. The resurrection is not just a sign and a token and a symbol of our hope beyond this world. We have been raised from the dead as Christ was raised up from the dead. Of course, we've been raised spiritually. But beloved... Also, please note that belief in the resurrection demands belief in the judgment. God here, by his servant Paul, is telling us that the resurrection is a sure sign that I'm going to judge the world. What exception? Where in any of these verses do we find any hint of an exception for anyone? That is able, as we've said, to be able to believe. Where's the exception? Dare I say, well, you know, well, brother, you said a provision. Okay, what's the provision? Well, you know, you already read some verses that says, look, uh, uh, they did it on this day, but God said, look, uh, you can do it on this day if these conditions are okay. What condition does the Bible tell us that a person can be excused from obedience? To the gospel of the Son of God who died for their sins. What is the provision that excludes obedience to that? I don't find that in these verses or any other ones. Now, I talked about those who believe in exceptions. And those who are rejecting the gospel because they believe they are an exception. But beloved, let me end with this note. 
if you're here and as a child of God, you give that little itty-bitty inch that people will take and make it a mile by things such as, hey, we don't know. Look, I, I, I'm not a judge. I don't judge. That we're not. But God has given us his judgment. Remember, God's wrath has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. It has been revealed. Let us stop acting like we don't know that. And so scared to tell people the truth about their condition. When you tell people the truth, you're not making yourself exceptional. You're simply doing what everybody else did. Going back to the prophets, Jesus and his apostles. We are simply doing what God commands us to do by teaching the truth. Telling people their sad state and their condition without Christ. Let's never try to make people an exception to that rule. Well, they're good people. Oh, you know, they're the best people in the world. Now, if anybody can get to heaven without Jesus, that person can. Really? Do we say stuff like that? If you say no, I've heard it. Now, maybe not y'all, and that's good. And, and I just, I, I'm, I'm, it blows my mind. That a Christian would say something like that. There are no exceptions to God's rule. God's commands. Now, again, there may be provisions. May be provisions. But please note, if there's a provision, God has revealed it. Just as we saw in Leviticus and Numbers. And so if that provision exists, find it. And then it's a provision of faith, not of assumption. And please, remember... You are just a servant of God. Let us not make too much of ourselves, okay, and make ourselves exceptional by telling people what perhaps they don't have to do. Who do we think we are when we do that? Jesus Christ did not die or come to this world and die for us to alter, change, and tell people what they don't have to do regarding his gospel. He came to tell them what they must do in order to be saved by him. And we are the human vessels we proclaim. If you're here today and you're not a child of God, we encourage you to become one. As we have seen, it is essential that one understand what the Bible reveals and what God requires of all of us to do what he commands pertaining to his son, Jesus Christ. That by faith, repentance, confessing Christ before men and being baptized for the remission of our sins, all of our past sins be washed away. God will add us to the church. He will be added to the body of Christ, a place of refuge and hope. And it's there that we will fellowship with God, his son, and with the spirit and with fellow believers. And we'll all be to heaven one day because not of our righteousness, because of the righteousness of Christ. But God knows that we are not perfect. And as the children of God, when we sin, we have but to confess Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive, forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and forth by the blood of his son. And so God has given us the means by which we can get to heaven. Even when you sin, God says, just, just confess it. Repent of it. And I'll save you. So if we're here today, we have need of obeying the gospel as a child of God. Coming back to that gospel. We encourage you to come as we stand and as we sing. Amen.